This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 47. Our look at what might be the big stories of the next 6 to 12 months in Nashville. Plus, from the vault, a section from September 2021, which looked at the implications of the then newly approved ELF test by FDA. This conversation starts by considering bottlenecks in the process. At the end of the previous conversation, Jorn Schottenberg mentioned that physicians would be a bottleneck if they did not know enough about the drugs. Here, Louise Campbell points to payers as a significant gate to clear on the way to product adoption. I suggest it depends on the healthcare system, but generally agree with Louise and use Hep C as an example where payers slow the adoption of drugs due to short-term cash issues. Jorn agrees payers will bottleneck, suggest appropriate patient pathways and stratification provide the best counter strategy, at which point Louise returns to her point that our health systems aren't ready to implement drug therapy yet, certainly not in the next year. In the last part of this conversation, I share Mazen Nouradine's comment from episode 46 that we're heading towards a combo-combo world, where in combinations of biomarkers are necessary to diagnose and stage combinations of drugs provide optimal therapy. Yorn discusses the value of the consortia, Litmus, Nimble, Yale NIT, Roit Lumba's Goldmine, in moving this issue and this perspective forward. We're heading into an exciting time in Nashville. For example, our episode next week discusses four recent press releases from companies with promising clinical trial results. Today's conversation blends the excitement about those kinds of upcoming advances in drugs and diagnostics with questions about whether the underlying structure exists to take advantage of the new technologies as they evolve. It raises as many questions as it answers, if not more. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. It's going to come down to the payers and, and they're going to say who can prescribe what. And so there will be restrictions on who's going to be able to prescribe, not just similar to hepatitis C. So, so, so that was where I was going to go, which is I'm wondering whether the bottleneck winds up being the prescribers or the payers. And to some degree, that will vary by country, because in the U.S., you can promote the day you get prescribed, even if you don't have payer approval yet. There are other places where it makes no sense to promote or educate until you have payer approval. So I, I, I don't know exactly how that two step is going to go, but I, I think the payers will be a huge bottleneck. If you think about it, payers tend not to invest in drugs. They like drugs that see a problem, hit a problem, fix a problem, right? Even hep C, where it was clear that when you got to the DAs, they were amazingly effective and that over a 10, 20 year period, they would save the health system money. The health systems couldn't afford the initial investment to save all the money they could save, which is part of how we got into genotyping and staging and all that stuff, because you needed to figure out which patients you were going to treat first. In NASH, where morbidity and mortality will be multi-system, cardiovascular being more important even than liver in some ways, and where the time horizons are, are vast, I, I think the, the payers might really be a challenge here. Jörn Schottenberg. I agree, and I think that's where a pushback is going to be. The health system I'm operating in, it's, if it's approved, the payer has to accept it, but the hurdles are then high and they're threatening with limitations or how to avoid prescribing the drug. I agree that the, the patient pathways will have to deal with that. We'll have to identify the right patients and talk with the payers and involve them uh, in this discussion. I, it's not an easy shot. No, I think not. Although it's a vitally important one. So one of the questions I, I would ask is, who are the players that have the ability to make it go better, faster, smoother? And I ask you in part because of the initiative that you and Jeff have undertaken, and because I now know you're part of these kinds of discussions in lots of different places. Are folks organizing right now in any meaningful way to get support for the drugs? Or is that way out of the bounds of the pathway discussions? I think there's a general perception that drugs will become available. They're not really advanced at this point, And I would 
would say it's still being waited for. So I'm not sure we're ready to have them um, enter the system yet. We're not ready to implement them. And unless we start implementing them, the process now and the foundations, because a lot of the foundations are used across the multimorbidity spectrum. And I was looking at a report today that was, and I and I just wondered, is, is this where payers come from? Do they believe the figures that we quote 25% of the global population? Or do they just think that, oh, it can't possibly be true? Because we've never heard of liver disease before. We've never heard of those problems. If it wasn't alcohol, it's not, or viral hepatitis, it's really not on our agenda. But I was looking at the economic impact overweight and obesity 2020 and 2060, which is a second edition. It's based on figures from 161 countries and it is an obesity federation. So highly experienced in what they're doing. Now, they are predicting that one in five women and one in seven men will have a BMI of over 30 by 2030. And that by 2060, nearly every country in the world that's developed will be spending 3% of its GDP on the effects of obesity now and outcomes, but also the societal impact. So that does include things like NAFLD, I suspect, and working out how much time patients are in hospital, but also the impact on workforce. And we already know that NAFLD and liver, particularly as a spectrum, is the second leading cause of working lives lost in Europe. So does it sit with purely healthcare or does it sit with workforce planning and industry? Because that's your workforce that is becoming sicker. The real figures that are frightening is that US by 2060, 91% of the population, including children, is expected to be overweight. That's 91% of the entire American population by 2060. But other countries that can't cope with it with lower middle income countries. And these figures are absolutely frightening. 3% of our GDP, but their GDP requirements will be 12 to 15 times what they're currently spending because of societal changes. So are drugs our cheapest way out or is it setting the framework now and the baseline to avoid where we can these issues? So making sure that people are aware, are educated, that we're targeting our workforce in healthcare to be able to pick up and help BMI, weight loss and target that because a lot of this is ingrained in our culture from birth. So the more I see and the more I hear at the meetings about these figures and Aran Sanyal was right and that was Paris Nash when he said what we've got is currently a failing of healthcare to identify patients so therefore that sickness on the spectrum in all of these diseases is key but getting the foundation or the pillars of care for fatty liver disease, liver disease and multimorbidity management is something we can be doing now. We do have the knowledge, we do have the technology and we have the workforce to be able to do it if we reconfigure it in a more patient-centric way I suppose and break down those silos. So I think it's frightening on all aspects and it is only getting bigger from all societies, obesity, endocrinology, alcohol, everything is saying that these figures are going up. But it is the children. There are children today that may not get to see life expectancy as long as I've got or we've got as a whole. That frightens me more than anything. So we do need to change. That was a pretty complete statement, Louise. And just quickly from my view, I think you're dead right in saying we got to invest at so many levels and drugs can only be a very small spectrum of that. And there is a lot of societal investment that we should do for this disease as part of metabolic health. First of all, we're in violent agreement on how important and good it would be to get this right. That said, I'm looking at the political courage of leaders or the courage of political leaders to tackle things that are difficult and require individual 
individuals to take responsibility on themselves. And to the degree that it's going to be on the political systems to invest to make this happen, I lack confidence for the most part that the political structures are capable of doing that. And let me frame that differently. What can you envisage happening in the next six to 12 months that will be a positive statement on whether we have the political or social will and capital to do this or possibly a negative statement, something we should need to be looking at on that issue? Six to 12 months is a very short timeline for anybody to make any changes. Gosh, it used to take me a year to get a business case through and at least two service managers just for each thing that we wanted to do in healthcare, let alone in politics. I don't know where it's going to come from, but if you say that by 2060 that we in the United Kingdom will be spending more on obesity outcomes than we spend on our defence budget, we really have to look at different ways. But for me, it's very difficult. People are never in a job long enough. We have a one-year cycle for finances. Structural changes have to happen at way higher levels than frontline delivery of care is often excellent. It's the processes behind. And it's a very difficult thing to get right. And I can't see much triggering in the next six to 12 months to alter that short of another pandemic that picks the same population that we're still not looking at to improve their health outcomes. This is almost a political question much bigger than we usually answer in this podcast. I would think that the power of information and education is something that's needed here. We got to invest in educating about metabolic health, about self-made decisions, about people being able to afford certain lifestyle choices that are more healthier than others. I think that's something. There's a very interesting concept we developed in the arena of public health the other day, looking at a urban green space index where you live in an urban area where you feel safer, you go out to exercise, uh, you grow up metabolically more healthy compared to a you know environment where there's less green, more pollution. And it could be the pollution or it's just, you know, you don't go out and exercise as much. So I think at many levels, societies can try to improve that. I agree it's a little troublesome times where there's a lot of economic crisis looming over us. So the investment in these healthy decisions is, is tough. On the other hand, I think we're so, you know, I'm still optimistic that mankind looks not frightful, but open-minded to education and empowerment that this will eventually help us overcome all crisis. Okay, let's step back away from that piece of the crisis then and over towards the tool. So one of the things that we wound up talking about in the last episode that both of you, Ms. Mazen brought up this idea that we've had occasionally on this podcast recently about Combo Combo, the idea that it's going to be a combination of diagnostics to tell us who to treat how, and then a combination of drugs used to treat them. I'm going to raise questions about two halves of Combo Combo. First of all, on the diagnostics half, Jorn, it feels to me like NIT is very much an initiative pointed in that direction and not the only one. But so what do you see from Nail NIT and Litmus and Nimble and the others in terms of an effort to move us along the stream towards, first of all, an NIT future, and second, even better, a Combo Combo NIT future? Yeah, I think the concept of Combo Combo speaks to not a single biomarker being good enough to make a final diagnosis. If we're talking about referral pathways, that might not need an immediate combo. You need a first step and then additional sequential testings, as discussed at the beginning of this session here. The clear advantage that we're going to see 
from the consortium ALNIT has that at its heart, but also Nimble, Goldmine, and Litmus that will have biomarkers that are more robustly linked to outcome, which might enable or promote drug development down the line if we have one biomarker that was validated prospectively. But it will also inform us if we have a drug approved based on conditional approval, which biomarker to be used and which setting. So I think clearly here, these consortia are the way forward to leave liver histology. And I can see liver histology in a label of an approved drug in the future, based also on the work that's been generated here. Yeah, I agree with Sean on that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss exciting advances in drug development as highlighted by recent press releases from Acara, Poxel, Altimmune, and Accela. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.